Walking distance is supported by Gossamer Gear. So there I was at Kit Lake on Avalanche Divide in the Grand Tetons. The wind was up and my Gossamer Gear trekking pole tent, The One, barely moved. At only 17 ounces, The One is bomb-proof with loads of room inside to sit up, store your gear, and stay dry and safe from the bugs. And Gossamer Gear Gorilla 50-liter ultralight backpack is roomy and organized enough for all I need, plus a week's worth of food. From trekking poles to hiking umbrellas, tents and backpacks, Gossamer Gear is some of the highest quality lightweight gear out there. And as a listener of Walking Distance, you can score 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE. Gossamer Gear. Take less. Do more. I think the statistical possibilities are that much more different than, you know, the things that can happen to somebody just in their day-to-day life. It's just that there's so few resources to mitigate them. You know, maybe you're on a trail that's super popular, not very far away from the city, but it's still a trail and there still isn't an ambulance that can get to you there, which means that you're probably on your own, at least for a while, with the stuff that you brought with you to help yourself out. From the Trek, this is Walking Distance, a show for hikers, trekkers, trampers, and wanderers that proves any place worth seeing can be reached by walking there, and that it's even better when you carry all you need in a backpack. I'm Blissful Hiker. Rebecca Olson is a volunteer with King County Search and Rescue in Washington State. She brings up the most basic concept that all of us hikers need to consider as we head out on trail— Taking a wrong turn, forgetting to pack a headlamp or a warm jacket or rain gear, or twisting an ankle in such a way that you can't keep walking, any of these can turn a day hike into a fight for survival. Problems we might have in the backcountry will likely need to be managed by ourselves and with the gear that we packed. Rescue is possible, but it can take time and will only come if someone knows we're in trouble. Rebecca is a team leader, leading missions into the backcountry to rescue lost and injured hikers. She's a passionate outdoorswoman, but was introduced to search and rescue after her own rescue following a devastating ski accident that taught her a lot about risk-taking and what someone goes through when in trouble outdoors. So I was a little tired and it was a little dark and I was going very fast and I essentially just lost control and fell. And I hurt my knee pretty badly. I ended up tearing my ACL, MCL, PCL, and meniscus, and I fractured my femur. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) all the things. So I remember sliding to a stop on the ice, kind of on my side, and just thinking, oh no, (laughs) whatever just happened was, was really bad, and I don't know what to do. I was cold. I couldn't move. I was in so much pain, and I've never felt so vulnerable in my whole life. So my friend called Ski Patrol, and they showed up, and they came and got me. They splinted my leg and put me in a toboggan and skied me down the mountain. Paramedics brought me to a hospital, and I began this very long and frustrating recovery. It was about six months before I could walk again and another year before I could run. And after all that, I eventually was able to hike and climb again and ski and all the things, made a full recovery. A good friend of mine suggested that. I consider joining search and rescue because it's something, you know, I was very passionate about hiking and the backcountry. And she said that, you know, I thought she thought it'd be a really great fit for me. 
So I went to this information session for King County Search and Rescue, which is uh, outside of Seattle. And I was immediately hooked. There are rescuers there who were talking about what it was like to save somebody. And I just cried because it's so deeply connected to the experience that I had of being saved and on the hardest day of my life. I imagine that a lot of our listeners know what a search and rescue is, but in case people don't understand, what exactly do you do? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, So search and rescue, we go out and help hikers who have been lost or who are injured in the backcountry who are not able to help themselves. So anytime somebody calls 911 from the wilderness, that call goes to search and rescue and we will like organize a mission and then go find them, provide first aid as best we can, and then bring them to better medical care. So are you like sometimes dangling off of a helicopter (laughs) to help people? (laughs) So rescuers definitely do that. I have not personally had that experience, but that is something that search and rescue does. You know, the possibility of being airlifted, that happens. I mean, this is a really important image to get as a hiker, because if you understand understand that somebody coming to rescue you is actually walking to you, that means that it's going to take some time to get there. It's never something really fast, like the ambulance coming down the street to pick you up. Right. And actually, that's a great question because it's usually a lot of time. And it's not just the time that it takes for us to walk there to get you. There are a whole bunch of steps right before that. So for example, if you slipped and fell and broke your ankle, you're a few miles in on a trail, probably don't have cell service, in order for search and rescue to get mobilized, somebody's got to call 911, which means somebody has either needs to have cell service and call 911 or go get to where there is cell service and then call 911, right? Right. So there's that amount of time. And then the dispatcher will call search and rescue who organizes a mission. Volunteers like me will get paged, but then we have to drive to wherever the trailhead is from wherever we are. And then walk in to get you. This could be hours, depending on how quickly the 911 call happened, how far down the trail you are. It might even be more than a day. What are the majority of problems? You've mentioned injury, getting lost. I mean, is that usually what happens to hikers who have to call 911? I think the majority of our missions have to do with somebody who has slipped or fallen and has some injury that prevents them from walking themselves back down the trail. So you can imagine a lot of ankle and leg types of injuries, rolled ankles, broken leg, that sort of thing. And so they need to be splinted and put into a litter, which we will carry down the trail. And then basically the the next probably most common one is getting somebody out who either got lost and can't find the way back. So we have to go find them and help them or who gets stuck someplace because they don't have the right tools to get themselves out of where they are. So for example, somebody who went and didn't really think through how long it was going to take them to hike down before the sun sets. They didn't have a headlamp. And so they're stuck on a trail that they can't see because it's dark. So we'll go find them and escort them back. There are a few that really stood out to me. One of them was two hikers who were going for a day hike in the winter. So there's a couple inches of fresh snow on the trail and they had a pretty good plan for how far they were going to go. And when they're going to come back and they told somebody where they're going um, and on the trail they got the recommendation to go to this really cool viewpoint that was you know, farther than they thought they were going to go and getting to that spot was more difficult than they expected there were down trees more snow and it just took them a long time they got pretty cold and wet and realized that they weren't going to be able to make it back to the trailhead that night 
So this becomes a pretty dangerous situation because these individuals were, you know, in sneakers and light jackets in a snowy climate. Now they got very, very lucky because they were able to find a tree hollow and crawl in there and survive the night and, you know, make it back to the trail where we found them and we got them in dry clothes and brought them out. But that is, for that type of situation, that is a pretty optimistic outcome. You know, not having a warm jacket or an emergency shelter or, you know, the right footwear potentially, it could really be the difference between life and death in the backcountry, especially in the winter. Right. I mean, I would think it would teach us, you know, to be sure that you have the 10 essentials, that you have something with you so that you could spend the night. And I mean, that really is kind of the paradigm shift is to ask yourself, I suppose, when you go out on a hike, could I spend the night out here? I mean, most of us don't do that. Yeah, because, you know, I think most people think of hiking as kind of the same thing as walking around in a park in the city. And it's really not. It's so much more than that. And it's so much more dangerous than that, because, you know, there's a lot of unpredictable factors that could happen. You know, the weather can change. You can fall. There could be hazards you didn't expect, like a stream crossing that you didn't realize was there or um, more snow than you thought. And, you know, a lot of people look at a hike just as a few hours on a trail, you know, popular, well-maintained, no big deal. Like maybe I just need a water bottle and a power bar. You know, you're in the back country. (laughs) I mean, not to spend the night in a tree hollow, that's for sure. (laughs) And, you know, the other thing is, um, I would say that it's it's just so important to think through your plan in in advance, right? Know the hike that you're going to do, look at a trail map and, you know, bring the trail map with you, which is an important of the trail 10 essentials, right? Make sure you're prepared for the hazards you might face and like know what they are. You know, read a trip report. Trip reports are so helpful and so great for preventing people in to getting into difficult situations that they don't have the tools for. You know, if there's snow on the trail or on the flip side, if you're in a very hot climate, knowing if there's access to water, right? Being prepared for that. Bring enough water if you don't have the ability to purify it yourself. And then on the opposite side of that, I'd say only do what you're actually prepared for too. Right. And that's another really big mistake people make. Like if you don't have good traction, like micro spikes or something like that, and you're trying to hike in the snow, or if you don't have waterproof shoes and you're trying to do a lot of stream crossings, your feet could get wet, they could get numb, and you might not be able to hike all the way back out. Yeah. I mean, these two people sound to me, well, it's really easy to sit here, you know, in your armchair and just be like, well, they really were dumb, but they certainly were lucky. And, you know, made a good decision to, you know, huddle into this space. But you've also, I guess it's not called rescue anymore. It's called recovery when you find someone who's who's died. Yes, that happens too. And that's another really important function of search and rescue because the backcountry is dangerous and not everybody survives. And sometimes we can't get there fast enough. One that stood out to me was it was an individual who gone for a day hike and, you know, had a jacket and extra food and water and was, you know, reasonably experienced hiker. And this person did not come home that evening. And so this person's family called 911. And, you know, I was out on the mission the next day. Um, and it was a it was a warm summer day. So it was a dry day. But thing is, is that in the Pacific Northwest, the forest is always very wet. There are a lot of big ferns that are wet. Um, there's streams, there's mud. You can get your clothes wet very easily. And if that happens, you can get hypothermia from being in wet clothes on a summer day at 60 degrees. 
And this individual got off trail somehow, got wet, possibly from one of these different reasons that I suggested and did not survive. And so we had to go and do this recovery. And it's very important for the family to have that sort of closure. So it's an important function that we do. But yeah, it's, it's difficult. Is it hard on you? It is. And it is hard because, you know, when you go on a search, you really hope that the outcome is going to be great and that you are going to bring that person home to their family. Like that is the goal. And it is hard on the rescuers when that isn't the case because you put so much effort into these searches, Um, so much time, so much training goes into it. And it's physically very difficult too. You know, we're going into places that are places where people have already gotten lost or had accidents. So they're more inherently dangerous than, you know, just regular hikes. And so we're putting ourselves in those positions and it's hard. So you're mentioning here two situations where people seem to put themselves, maybe they went too far, um, didn't have quite the right gear. But accidents happen, which normally aren't our fault. I mean, we, you know, fell down or something hit us. Um, How can you try to mitigate the damage in that case if you're a hiker? How can you keep yourself um, as safe and certainly alive out there in that situation? Well, um, you know, if you're already in a situation where you've had an accident of some kind and you're potentially waiting for rescue, the most important thing is to stay calm, right? No matter what the scenario is, you don't ever want to panic. You know, if you're lost, you realize you're off trail, you know, just stop, think it through for a second, take a breath, look around, you know, don't spin around and (laughs) freak out, right? You'll probably be more lost then. (laughs) Or if you have an injury, you know, make yourself comfortable and safe. You know, think through what the weather is, what it's going to be, you know, many hours from now, which is maybe how long you have to wait for a rescue and get yourself in like a safe and comfortable and dry position to wait. Another thing we say is if you're in a survival situation, there's this rule of threes that can help guide your decisions while you're waiting for rescue or getting yourself out if you don't think rescue is coming. And it is, you can survive for about three hours without shelter. So shelter is your first priority for survival, protecting yourself from the elements. You could survive for about three days without water. That's your next priority. But you could also survive for about three weeks without food. So, you know, don't go eating those sketchy mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) You know, certainly there's a learning curve for for the people who've been rescued. You know, I wish I'd taken a coat. I wish I had a bivy. But, you know, what are some of the key things that people have done that have, uh, you know, led to the situation where they were rescued and they did survive um, that we can be thinking about? I mean, there was maybe not panicking. There was, you know, putting shelter first. Are there any sort of surprising tips that you say, oh, they did such and so? Yeah. So um, a really kind of surprising one you think is um, if you are in a situation where you know help is coming, perhaps you've already called 911 or Um, you told somebody where you were going and when to call 911 if you didn't show up back home and that time has come and passed and so you could expect that the help is coming. If you're in that situation, you know, it's really important to not be moving because it's pretty difficult for rescuers to find a moving target. Um, I was on a mission once where, you know, some individuals had called 911 
because they were lost. They knew that they didn't have a lot of phone battery left and that was their navigation system and they weren't really familiar with the trails that they were on. So they called 911 knowing that they didn't think they're going to make it back out. Great reason to call 911. And so, you know, a search was mobilized and we get a GPS ping from the 911 call. So we have a general idea of where we're going. But it took us a really long time to find them. And they ended up needing to be stuck out in the backcountry overnight because they were moving. Fortunately, somebody found them because they revisited a spot where we thought they would be and they were found and they were all okay. But, you know, that's an important one. So make sure you, <laughs> if help is coming, don't be moving because it becomes very, very difficult for us rescuers to, to find a moving target. Um, and some other. And then some other, you know, really great ones are making good use of that emergency gear that you brought. Like, you know, a thermal blanket can get you out of a lot of difficult situations. Um, or, you know, I'm a really big fan of the emergency bivy because you can keep yourself dry and warm enough to survive overnight. And it takes up very little space. Right. And that's something that people can do. So there was one other question I wanted to ask, and it's a, kind of a different line of this whole conversation. But, you know, during COVID, there has been an increase in the use of the backcountry, especially by people who aren't as familiar. And I know that there have been more calls to search and rescue. You mentioned that at the beginning of the conversation. And I kind of wonder about, you know, the expense really to to society as a whole. So King County doesn't charge for the rescues, but somebody has to pay for it eventually. So don't you think that there's kind of a responsibility for us hikers to try to not ever have to call if we can? Absolutely. And I would first say that if you're in a situation where you're in danger, don't let that prevent you from calling because it's really important to call 911 if you need help because if you wait, you could make the mission a lot harder for us, Mm, right? Yeah. Like it could turn from a daytime mission to a nighttime mission. Um, It could require a lot more manpower. Um, You know, your chances of surviving may not be as good. So I would, so don't wait to call 911 if you think you need to. But that being said, it is a free service in King County. And so the entire search and rescue organization in King County is, we're all volunteers, you know, and King County is funded by donations. And so I do think that it's really important for hikers to like take that preparedness seriously because it is really hard to mobilize a search and rescue mission. Rebecca Olson, thanks so much for talking with us today. And I hope that when we meet, it's never through a rescue. It's just on a hike. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking with you, too. And I I hope for the same thing. (laughs) Rebecca Olson is a team leader at King County Search and Rescue. And she brings up some really important points. Hiking on trails, even popular ones, can be dangerous. Of course, you can still get hurt here in the front country, But we most likely can depend on an ambulance coming. In the backcountry, rescue is not quick. Some other good rules of thumb that she asks us to consider. Know the hike you're going to do. Tell someone when you're going and when you're expected to return. Bring a trail map. Make sure you're prepared for hazards you might face by reading a trip report. And only do what you're actually prepared to do. Then if you're in trouble... Stay calm and stay put and remember the rule of threes to guide your decision-making. You can survive three hours without shelter. You can survive three days without water. And you can survive three weeks without food. I mean, you're not going to be happy, but you'll stay alive, so you do want to prioritize. But maybe the most important thing, and one that Rebecca mentioned over and over, is to be prepared with what you pack. And that includes 
the 10 essentials. All right, it's called the Mountaineer's 10 Essentials Limerick. To navigate, head for the sun, with first aid and knife on the run. Bring fire and shelter, extra food as a helper, water and clothes weigh a ton. (laughs) That's Steve McClure from the Mountaineers reading the Mountaineers 10 Essential Limerick. Navigation, headlamp, sun protection, first aid, knife, fire, shelter, extra food, extra water, and extra clothes. That was pretty good. I'm Blissful Hiker. And coming up, Steve McClure shares his thoughts on the list and some great suggestions for how to easily pack them. This is Walking Distance from the Trek. Walking Distance is supported by Garage Grown Gear, your one-stop online shop for ultralight gear from over a hundred small startup and cottage outdoor brands. Everything from quilts and packs to accessories and meals from makers including Catabatic, Lone Star Ultralight, Bear Vault and Lightened Equipment, Nomad Nutrition, Six Moon Designs, Goose Feet Gear, and one of my faves, Kula Cloth. They offer free shipping for orders over $20. And here's a really cool deal. First-time customers get 10% off using the code DISTANCE10. That's 10% off your first order using the code DISTANCE10. Support the little dudes, shop intentionally, and get 10% off at garagegrowngear.com. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Walking Distance. The 10 Essentials were created by the Mountaineers, an alpine club out in Seattle founded in 1906, and a nonprofit that focuses on outdoor recreation, education, and conservation. Steve McClure is an active member and serves on the board, and he helped update the ninth edition of Mountaineering Freedom of the Hills, the Bible for climbers and mountaineers of all levels. It was in the third edition of this book, back in 1974, that the 10 Essentials list was first compiled, and it represents a kind of insurance policy and the minimum amount of gear one needs to be safe heading into the backcountry, even on a day hike. So there are two questions that the 10 Essentials seek to answer, and that provides the framework for packing the gear. Number one, can you prevent emergencies and respond positively should one occur? And number two, Can you safely spend a night or more outside? Steve McClure writes this, Packing everything you might need to stay safe, dry, and comfortable paradoxically can lead to danger, chill, and misery. The challenge is to limit the load just right so you can move fast enough and carry the essential gear for success and survival. I'm glad you brought that up. I've struggled over that sentence for a long time and was very pleased with it. So... It's true. It, you know, you take too much, you can be weighted down and, and you travel more slowly and that's a risk going the other direction. But, you know, we, we all notice we go out and we see people, you know, they're on a day hike and they have nothing. These days they might be carrying a water bottle. I, I want to stop them and shake them going, you know, the sun's going to be down in two hours and you're still headed in. What are you doing? Well, I think if you talk to anybody that's been out quite a bit, stuff happens and eventually it's going to happen to you or someone you're with. It's so easy to assemble a kit of the 10 essentials that you can keep packed and ready to go, you know, for for any of your trips. It it really needs to become a habit for everybody. 
Yeah. Now, you refer to the Ten Essentials as the sacred scrolls of the mountaineers. And I find it interesting that you did a pop quiz at a climbing committee meeting, and no one could name all of the Ten Essentials. I mean, the word essential is in the name. Maybe you could share that story with us and sort of how that made you feel, that even your own climbing community wasn't entirely sure of what they were. So I was recruited to rewrite basically the camping gear and clothing sections. And so I went to my editor and said, can I change these? You know, and he literally, he literally took a step back and gave me this scowl and said, what do you want to do? Make it 11? I said, no, (laughs) there's just some things that have always bothered me about it. And if you look at the eighth and seventh editions of the Mountaineers, it got very, very wordy and difficult to remember. And so I I did a pop quiz to see if, you know, anybody could name all 10 hmm. and nobody in the room could except for one guy and he got 12. <laughs> Just a minute here. That's two more. <laughs> That's right. So I tried to do two things. One was really simplify the language. So instead of talking about, you know, knife and repair kit, I just abbreviated that to knife. And and then simply the word fire which stands for a whole bunch of things. I also tried to put them in order that made some sense. First thing I decided was, well, if I put the three extras at the end, that'll be easier to remember. So extra food, extra water, extra clothes. So that was a that was an easy change. And then I got to thinking about it and I put them in an order. So the first five, you know, basically answer that first question of, can you prevent an emergency or respond effectively if one happens. And the second five are there to make sure you can make it through a night, an unplanned night in the outdoors. The first seven are quite small, and you can typically leave them packed in your pack. Navigation, except for the maps where you're going, headlamp, sun protection, first aid, knife, fire, and shelter. You can leave those packed all the time. You add extra food, extra water, extra clothes, and you're at, at least from a ten essential standpoint, you're you're ready to go. So maybe we should go through the list a little bit and talk about like what it means. I mean, navigation can be as simple as maps, but a lot of time people just take their phone as navigation. And you know, should you have backup? I mean, how serious is that? We gave navigation an awful lot of thought. How do people navigate today? really what is the minimum set that you should take with you? Every individual or at least every group ought to have five tools when they go out. So they should have a a physical map. They should have an altimeter if they're going into a mountainous area. They should have a compass, a a regular old magnetic compass. Uh, They should have a GPS device, which, which can be your phone and is typically your phone these days. And then the, the fifth is you need to have a way to contact first responders. And uh, that can be a dedicated PLB that has, you know, no communication associated with it. Just a button you hit if you, if you get into trouble. Or it could be a satellite communicator. Right. And what about the altimeter? I mean, how important is that for a hiker? Well, you know, when when I talk to experienced navigators, and I, I took another poll once, we had a summit of navigators, and I said, who here, and these are all experienced navigators, who here uses their altimeter 
a hundred times more often than their compass. Laughter goes through the room and they all start to think about it and say, yeah, yeah, that's that's about right. You know, if you know you're at 5,000 feet and if you know you're on a trail, a certain trail, for example, you know exactly where you are. You could be at two or three different places if it, you know, meanders up and down, but the altimeter can uh, tell you where you are if, if you also have a map. Do altimeters come on phones or on GPS, or is that a whole separate item? Well, uh, both, of course. Uh, so the the apps on phones are really quite good, and some of them are pressure-based, and some of them are based on GPS. And the most interesting ones do both. And so they give you multiple answers as to what your elevation is, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so Steve, we've been talking about the 10 essentials, how important they are, how you've kind of organized them so people remember. But what do you take in your pack? Well, of course, it varies by the trip. But, you know, I have found some things that I often recommend. So for navigation, I've really fallen in love with the Garmin InReach Mini. It's tiny. It allows for two-way communication. Peace of mind for uh, my family if, if they're not with me to know where I am and that I'm okay and peace of mind for me in case things go awry. Uh, Gaia GPS for the GPS app on your phone and for making maps, which is the new way to do it. Uh, Gaia has a good facility for that, but also there's an online mapping tool called CalTopo and you can make very sophisticated maps and they have an app out, which is getting really, really good. And uh, we'll be giving Gaia a run for their money. For, for headlamp, I've had this dilemma ever since I was a kid and always fond of flashlights that you go out on a hike and you use it for a couple of hours. And then for the next hike, you can't remember the status of your batteries. Are they almost dead? Are they almost, you know, did I just use them for a few hours? Nobody wants to throw them out after every hike. And so Petzl has this, a line of headlamps uh, with what they call their core rechargeable battery. And so at the end of every hike, I take this battery out. It's the shape of three AAA batteries. You plug that in, red light glows until it's full, and then a green light goes on, and you put that in your, in your headlamp. And then I carry three AAA regular batteries as backup. So if I, if I was out for a long time. So that's been, that's been great. And then when I'm going real light, Petzl also makes uh, something called an E, the letter E plus light, L-I-T-E, they call it an emergency headlamp. You know, when the days are long in the middle of the summer, it's just uh, just enough. You know, it's funny. I hiked the entire PCT and I never once turned on my headlamp. <laughs> so, you know, it's just there for an emergency, basically. It often is, especially in the summertime. So, so for sun protection, you know, it's best to use the mineral-based sunscreens if you're going to be out for a long time. And the non-mineral sunscreens are actually consumed by the UV, these little hexene rings that get broken to absorb the, the UV energy. So the only practical answer is, is to use the mineral-based with um, titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. But I hate looking like I'm, you know, a, a clown and I'm about <laughs> to go to the parade, you know, just in the last year or so, I've started using tinted mineral-based sunscreen. Gives you a little bit of a tan. So the, what I'm actually using is called Australian Gold Botanical Sunscreen Tinted. Uh, 
first aid typically consists of taping people's heels, you know, for blisters. Could be lots of things, cuts and and, and so on. Um, the two things that I like are called Spenco Adhesive Knit. And more recently, I've started to carry Luco tape. Physical therapists use a lot. Hmm. They both stick on really, really well. Do you add anything to your first aid in case of like a bee sting? I mean, like a Sudafed or something. Yeah, a friend of mine's an MD, and he went through my first aid kit one time, and he, he recommended adding antihistamine tablets to to my first aid kit, which could be chewed up and, and swallowed if someone had a, a reaction to a bee sting. So for under knife, which stands for knife and re- repair kit, I carry something that Gear Aid puts out, which is Aquaseal UV repair adhesive. So in the field, you can do a permanent repair. You might put tape over it to protect it from getting scraped off, but that's all. You're good to go. So for fire, which stands for the stuff you might need to make a fire, or if you're above timberline, that's kind of silly. There's no wood. It means, you know, a small stove so that you can heat water if you get into a a cold situation. So I carry a trail design stove that burns these little cubes that look like wax. It's fuel called Esbit. A lot of the through hikers are are carrying this now. Uh, Weight for weight, it's significantly lighter than alcohol. So if you're really counting grams. One other thing under fire that is kind of cool is you can buy refillable lighters. I know everybody takes Bix and I usually have a few Bix in my pack, but they're kind of hard to tell how full they are, you know, and you don't want to, it's like the batteries, you hate to throw it away. And, and so what you can do is get refillable uh, lighters and they sell a little device that you screw onto a isobutane canister, you know, cause we all have canisters that are 10% full. Right. Can't use them at all, really. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to take it because it's too heavy, but we don't want to throw it away because it's not. So what you can do, you, you, you screw this little adapter on and you can fill up your lighter. So what else? Let's see. Um, the bivy sack. The bivy sack. SOL has this three and a half ounce one. Extra food, you know, doesn't have to be nutritious. It, it, it might even be something that doesn't taste all that good. <laughs> So that it stays in your pack there as extra food. But, uh, you know, for extra water, I'm always touting the idea of chlorine dioxide. You know, two two little bottles and you put them together and you wait five minutes until it turns kind of a, a pea yellow and add it to your water. It's not only super lightweight, and I even go crazy and decant them into little tiny bottles. So no excuse not to have that with me all the time. But when you're drinking water in the backcountry, you've got really three things you're worried about. You've got protozoa, which are relatively big. You've got bacteria and you've got viruses. Iodine and chlorine handle the medium and small ones, the bacteria and the virus. They don't do nearly as well against protozoa, meaning, you know, Jardia and crypto. Extra clothes, make sure you always have a waterproof breathable shell. And then I typically throw in my puffy coat and my puffy pants from a little company called Goosefeet Gear. It just sounds too cozy. I mean, <laughs> you just want to take a yes, nap. Yes, you can wait a few days for rescue. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a couple last things that sort of outside the 10 essentials, but having the proper footwear can prevent more accidents than just about anything else. So have a pair of micro spikes, bring them for a little more adventuresome trips. 
get an aluminum pair of crampons and learn how to use them. And uh, more adventuresome than that, get a lightweight ice axe and, and learn how to do self-arrest. Steve McClure, thanks so much for sharing with us today. Really appreciate it. Allison, been, been my pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. Steve McClure is a board member of the Mountaineers, and he teaches intensive alpine scrambling and climbing courses. And he's also reminded me that the Mountaineers 10 Essentials is actually trademarked now. Well, I've posted the 10 Essentials limerick and the full 10 Essentials list, plus Steve's list in our show notes, which I actually found pretty interesting, especially thinking of having five different forms of navigation— And also that tinted mineral-based sunscreen and the refillable lighters. That was really cool. All that's in our show notes so you can make your own 10 Essentials kit and throw it in your pack when you're heading out on trail. As always, we'd love to hear from you about how your hikes are going, how you've managed a tough situation, and what you pack. I mean, maybe the most important item on your list is common sense. You can reach us at walkingdistanceatthetrek.co. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends about Walking Distance and go ahead and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That does help people find us. Thanks again to today's title sponsor, Gossamer Gear, manufacturers of high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear and accessories, and my choice for thru-hiking. You can save 15% on your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code word walking distance, all one word, walking distance, and save 15% off your order at gossamergear.com. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you've been listening to Walking Distance from the Trek. Trek.